Take a network break. This week, we've got stories on the U.S. versus China in tech, new money for a SaaS startup, and quarterly financial results. Grab a virtual donut as we talk about all this. Uh, we don't have a sponsor today, but we do have a Tech Bytes podcast where we're talking SD-WAN, particularly diving into new features and capabilities in Aruba's Edge Connect SD-WAN, including new security and segmentation features, licensing options, and more. I like that. I just that was a good discussion that uh, that Tech Byte because. SD-WAN sort of becoming fairly predictable in a way, like most of the feature, all the vendors are, are converging around a common set of features, mm-hmm. for and the basics are kind of covered now. And so it's an interesting one to talk about the other stuff that's coming along. And yes. Aruba is one of the major players. Obviously, yes. with their acquisition of Silverpeak, they were always a major SD-WAN player. And I think they've got a really strong portfolio around SD-WAN. It'd be on the top of my list if I was evaluating, I think. Right, and how SD-WAN is also sort of morphing into the broader SASE conversation. So yeah, lots of interesting stuff happening mm. there. Um, and just a reminder, if you're a Network Breaker listener, you may want to check out other podcasts in the Packet Pushers Network. That includes Day2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Kubernetes Unpacked, and Heavy Strategy. And Greg, that's another podcast you do with Johanna uh, Till Johnson from Namurtis, where you guys have it out over a topic every week. Yeah, the point there is to argue. I mean, debate, debate. Um, <laughs> so what we actually do is try... <laughs> Try and take two sides of a discussion and debate just for the fun of having a debate. And it, one of the feedback we get is that you people really feel, you know, people write in and say, Greg, you're so objectionable and not nice to Jonah. And then I get an email saying, Jonah's such an objectionable person. Why is she arguing with you all the time? So <laughs> job done, <laughs> I, I guess. I guess it's working then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the idea is is, is to discuss these things, but, you know, I, from a, from opposing points of view mm-hmm. in the hope that, you know, so many other times we do shows where everything's like, oh, yeah, 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 this is what, it, you know, and they're all so agreeable and everybody's aligned and, you know, this is, and and what and so what we wanted to do is sort of turn that around a little bit and promote the discussion so that you listening can go like, oh, I like that idea, or I like that idea, because everybody's situation is different. Everybody uses the same technology and the same standards and blah, 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 but everybody's situation is a little bit different. So what we're trying to do is just surface ideas for and against, and maybe you can use some of them in your in your work, so... Please come over and listen. Yeah, that's all packetpushers.net. All right, let's dive into some news. Uh, This October, the UK government had begun ordering telecom companies in the UK to remove all Huawei equipment from 5G networks. The telcos have until 2027 to comply. Uh, This is following an order from two years ago that forbid the purchase of new Huawei gear. Uh, uh, But the UK is now saying you got to get that existing equipment out. Yeah, well, this is actually an extension in my reading anyway, Drew, that they'd previously ordered the release of the equipment. And now what they're saying is you've got a bit longer to take it out, which mm-hmm. is always going to happen. Sure. Uh, but in this case, they're particularly pointing the finger at COVID and the disruptions that have happened and so forth. But what I think is more important is that they're reaffirming that this is not going away. Uh, in particular, in the UK, um, we, we we saw some recent announcements from the NCSC, which is sort of a, a spokes body for the Secret Service community, right? And a particularly senior executive really stood up recently and said, you know, China is the threat. China and Chinese companies and doing business with China isn't going to go forward. We're going to have to get off them. And that was kind of like the most uh, strongest take I've ever seen. There's And there's definitely a thing from politicians that, you know, we want to engage China because it's profitable and good for business. And the UK with Brexit has a bit of a, you know, background problem going on there. But at the same time, the UK has to be uh, part of the Western alliances and slowly but steadily, the US, the EU, the Britain, and most of the, you know, Japan and, and so forth, Australia are saying we can't continue to do business with China because it's against our own interests. So we're seeing the shift around to, to make that a long term to move away. And we'll talk more about that down in the show. I've generally just called that geopolitics. If you hear me say that, that's generally what we're seeing is a shift where China and Russia are on one side and the rest of the world is on the other, much simpler than it used to be. It was, you know, sort of the West, Russia and China are all in a big competition with various other major companies like India in the middle, sort of stuck, not knowing which side to go for. And now it's sort of shaking out much more. So these announcements are really part of what we followed on from a thread from some years ago where the Huawei equipment was sort of determined to be unprovably safe. And I think the Secret Services were very worried that hundreds and hundreds of Huawei engineers were actually sitting inside the vendors who bought their gear, ostensibly to do service work and to try and keep the gear running and to fix the bugs that was in the equipment. Mm -hmm. But they also had access to comprehensive information. So I see this partly a validation of the Huawei gear is unsafe and could have backdoors, but I really think this is much more don't let 
while we engineers on site. We'd need to keep that information confidential and secure it against, you know, as critical national infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, Western governments have sort of long suspected Huawei of one, stealing intellectual property and two, uh, having the potential to put in backdoors if they were in, you know, Western networks that could be used to, to gather up information. Uh, I will note that the register reporting on the story said uh, that the National Cyber Security Center in the UK uh, said that the security of Huawei equipment couldn't be maintained due to the impact of U.S. sanctions on Hawaii supply, uh, Huawei mm-hmm. supply chain, which isn't quite the same as saying Huawei itself is insecure, just that because we of the sanctions on the supply chain, we can't confidently upgrade the gear, which is, uh, I think, a slightly yeah. different yeah. <laughs> angle on this. But I think it's also basically just <laughs> yeah. the U.S. pressuring its allies to say, we got to boot Chinese uh, vendors out of our uh, sensitive systems. I don't think the U.S. is pressuring in this case. I think everybody's going, we need to do this. And, you know, the U.S. Uh, export sanctions are quite wide ranging. But I think in the light of the Russian-Ukraine war, you know, the unprovoked aggression of Ukraine, that's changing and we're seeing a different geopolitics emerge. So, so what we're seeing here is a public expression of, yes, we mean it. Yes, we know it's hard, but you still got to do it. That's mm-hmm. how I read it anyway. Uh, so in a related story, the U.S. Justice Department has charged two Chinese intelligence officers for allegedly trying to obstruct a U.S. investigation into Huawei. According to news reports, the intelligence officers were looking to get inside info on the U.S. government's ongoing probe into, quote, financial fraud, trade secret theft, and sanctions violations committed by Huawei. Uh, the Chinese intelligence officers paid cash, jewelry, and digital cu- currency to a double agent who is actually working for the FBI. <laughs> wow, that's a real entrapment. That's real spy novel stuff, you know, yeah. entrapping Chinese nationals for trying to find details for the investigation into Huawei so that the, you know, and you have to believe that the Chinese government and Huawei are one and the same. That's the general consensus. And indeed, various, you know, statements from the US Secret Services and from the UK services and some of the Europeans confirm that that's the case. It's not universal. For example, Germany doesn't have this type of stuff. Some of the various European nations don't. Um, but it is a confirmation of the previous previous story is that the US-UK alliance generally regards Chinese nationals and the company of Huawei and other Chinese companies as directly a threat to national security. And this sort of proves that something's going on because somebody was attempting to buy details on the Huawei investigation to try mm-hmm. and just, you know, I, I assume to try and counter it. Right, and find this a way to was able to it, capture yeah. it. So it's a proof that you know, whatever stance you want to take, this there is something happening. So. It, it is an interesting and sometimes uncomfortable mix of, you know, sort of standard straight networking stuff with a broader geopolitical uh, conflict, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I also noticed, I, I put this in a bit after, so I don't know if you noticed it, but this week in Europe there was a bit of a blowhard about a Chinese police stations have been uncovered in the Netherlands. What they're saying is that the various diplomatic posts have actually become unofficial police stations where Chinese operatives are monitoring Chinese people in foreign countries and making sure that they don't um, do anything against China and keeping control of those citizens and making sure they're reminding them that they are Chinese citizens and so forth. So if you go back to the to the you know to the diplomatic station to get your license you know renewed or mm-hmm. your passport renewed, they get details on you, ask you what you're doing, and and what we're seeing is the suggestion is that these so-called police stations are actually s- setting up as observer posts, and if there's a Chinese citizen in a foreign country, they believe that they should be under control of the central services just like they would be in China, and now the, the suggestion, there's many more articles about this that are creeping out, then the suggestion is that there's now like a couple of hundred of them around the world, there's over 50 in Europe, and the secret services have clearly been aware of them to some mm-hmm. extent, mm-hmm. so we're going to have to start factoring that in. If you have a Chinese national employed in your company, is it are they actually working for you or are they working for the Chinese government is literally the suggestion here. Right, and the fact that China can uh, sort of physically reach out to tourists, travelers, or, mm. or dissidents uh, in the whatever other country they may be could be potentially chilling for people, yeah. Yeah, and, this, you know, the central authority that they run, you know, they've got control of your extended family if they are still in China. Right, and so forth, so. yep. All right, so our last story in this sort of uh, geopolitical technology blend, the United States is hoping to get uh, Japan and the Netherlands uh, to uh, block uh, China's access to advanced chip-making equipment uh, from companies such as Tokyo Electron and AMSL Holdings. AMSL Holdings is a Dutch company that uh, is essential for uh, chip manufacturing. 
Yeah, most of the actual equipment that makes chips, especially the most modern of chips, comes from uh, ASML in the Netherlands, uh, Japan, who makes the, and they make the key bits around the EUV uh, lithography processes. But there's also a range of companies in places like Germany and the UK who make uh, subsidiary systems, like, for example, uh, air filtering. If you're going to have air in a plant that's going to be laying down <laughs> um, mm-hmm. laser, you know, ultraviolet light at three nanometer accuracy, you <laughs> want to have ultra pure air. Mm-hmm. And the power has to be extremely stabilized, um, and and there's a whole range of different things that go on here. Um, and 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 so put it. Let's put the politics aside from this. What does it mean from enterprise IT? We talked. Had, this is our third article on this. Um, obviously, the U.S. government says it's not enough to just say don't export chips from the U.S. to China. Now it's become don't export chips from anywhere to China, and now it's or become a realization equipment. that yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's to say, well, we can't. We now what we need to do is stop sending chip making equipment, and that's going to mean long term for enterprise IT is that production supply chains are going to shift. And the question now is, China manufactures a few chips today, mostly the older processors or the older chips in the sort of twenty nanometer to ninety nanometer range. So it's not the modern stuff. It's mostly what we use in power supplies or in cars or consumer electronics like washing machines and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the goal here is to um, actually say that the $400 billion worth of chips that is imported into China every year and then assembled and manufactured and then shipped back out, they want to stop those. They want to keep it that way as best as I can understand or potentially even stop that over time. But particularly, they don't want the chips to be made in China. So China remains dependent on the rest of the world for those chips and it can assemble them and ship them back out to us, but it can't make them itself. And that remains, a, that would then become a strategic leverage. And so finding the political will to actually restrict the machines to prevent China from making its own chips or especially the advanced chips. You can't do much about the old chips because the government, China's companies have already established their own processes. Mm-hmm. Um, what's also interesting is that the Chinese government spent, I think it was something like $20 billion to establish its own manufacturing program to make the machinery that makes chips. Mm-hmm. And that has been happening over the last decade or so. It might be way more than $20 billion, but it was identified as part of the risk and they invested in it and got nothing. Uh, basically, what was happened is the, the whoever they gave the money to basically went offshore and bought old fabs and then claimed that it was an innovation. Uh, <laughs> there was some research and so forth, but you know it's a starting point. You, you, if you're going to build chip provocation, you need thousands and thousands of engineers who are going to work around the clock babysitting these machines 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy job, right? So you, and, yeah. and these machines take six months to align. You put them in... You know, they have to be aligned. It takes six months of work by specialists to be able to just focus them and get them working the way they're supposed to just, you know, that sort of thing. So I think the impact here to enterprise IT is it's going to create a lot of uncertainties around their supply chains. It's going to create problems for vendors selling hardware. They're going to have to shift manufacturing from, you know, existing partners like Honhai and Foxconn who are manufacturing switches and routers in China, you're going to see some part of that start to move offshore to new factories, Vietnam, Philippines, India, most likely. Uh, Pakistan may, so far, hasn't been a destination, which is a shame. But, you know, so many other countries can do the manufacturing at low cost. And then we're also going to see, uh, you know, chips start to move away from being manufactured in TSMC as the pressure comes on. We've talked about this over the last few weeks, where the fabs are going to be much more distributed. We're seeing companies start to set up. Um, wafer manufacturing plants. So you, if you're going to make a chip, you have to have a wafer and you have to create the silicon, you know, the hyper-pure silicon and so forth. So this is going to be very disruptive. And I think a lot of the enterprise IT vendors have had a pretty cushy time for the last decade or so. So 20 years ago, building a supply chain was really difficult and there was a lot of specialist people and it got really hard. And I wonder how many of the IT vendors that we rely on today have the skills to negotiate a disrupted supply chain. And that's probably what we're going to experience. Well, they've certainly had some practice with it over the past couple of years because of COVID disruptions. But I think if what you're talking Mm. about bears out, uh, that kind of trying to spin up uh, an entire new ecosystem around chip development and manufacturing could have more significant ramifications Mm. than just a supply chain crunch. So, yeah. Yeah, so you know those days of you know, saying, oh, "I'll just go and get another server," and six weeks later you've got a server. You could be back to where we were twenty years ago, thirty years ago, where you would be ordering equipment six months ahead, 
and waiting for it to ship mm-hmm. in. And you know, you would have to you have to start pre-ordering your on-prem assets. Now, may, that may make off-prem cloud more attractive to some people because they're in a situation to manage their supply chain better, uh, and you know, because they're operating at scale. But I think on-prem remains the dominant way forward. The cost control and the ability to manage your business to take control of your business. You're not outsourcing your business, your key business activities to a third party that doesn't have your interests at heart. Um, but it does mean that you may have a much longer lead time going forward. But I also expect to see companies pivot to services and software. So, for example, HP GreenLake and HP Esmeral, they have very much said the hardware is not that important. What you need to focus on is the software and services that we give you with the hardware. I expect to see that much more. You know, the idea that Dell Apex and We've got these cloud management solutions where we manage your servers from the cloud and we manage your workloads and we manage and we sell you. I think you're going to see much more of that software and services because the companies can control that and they can iterate that at their own pace. And the hardware, to some extent, most of the hardware we have today is more than we need for many enterprises. You know, how many enterprises need that 800 gig switch, Drew, that we talked about last week Not from many. Cisco? Right, right, right. That's a Not many, specialized right? market. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know, maybe maybe we're in a period where the hardware doesn't matter, and maybe the impact is mitigated. It's a little hard to be sure, in a you know five minutes on a podcast on a Friday. Sure. Well, I mean, we're, we're also seeing other inflection points, and we'll talk a little bit about it later in the show with folks like Intel trying to bring more chip uh, development back onto the U.S., uh, which is costing them a lot of money and probably causing them some uh, headaches with Wall Street. But we'll we'll get to that later. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we're in, we're in for some interesting times. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Versa, Versa Networks, which sells SD-WAN and SASE services, has announced $120 million in new funding. The company is calling it a pre-IPO round of investment. Uh, this round was led primarily by the BlackRock Investment Company. Uh, Versa has raised $316 million over seven rounds to date, including this latest uh, investment. Uh, Versa came to market offering SD-WAN services for service providers and telcos that wanted to resell SD-WAN. And over the years, they've pivoted into uh, or added on security and SASE. Yeah, Versa's an interesting company. They never set out to sell directly to end users. They always wanted to sell to vendors or to telcos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for example, a while ago, Riverbed was OEMing Versa for their SD-WAN products rather than you know, maintaining their own stocks of hardware and developing their own software. And then they added some value on top of that by welding it into another tool. Now, Riverbit's obviously pivoted away to a different strategy, but we've also seen a lot of telcos buy the Versa and then rebadge the gear as their brand of SD-WAN as well. Mm. And that's kind of where Versa is, is that rebranding strategy or people can build something on top of their product and sell it as a vertically integrated solution. That's my understanding, at least. Uh, So getting $120 That's not a lot for an SD-WAN company. Uh, This feels like a very small, undersized round. And the interesting thing I know, you said BlackRock was the investment company? Yep. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Chuck Robbins is on the board of BlackRock, by the way. Is he really? Yeah, that's right. So Chuck Robbins is the CEO of Cisco, but that's only his part-time job. He has a job also as on the board of BlackRock Investments, so... So uh, the company press release uh, announcing this investment says that there's a Gartner prediction that SASE is going to be a $15 billion market by 2025. And given that uh, Gartner only coined SASE a couple of years ago, that's pretty good growth, which I think explains why BlackRock may be wanting to get in on this uh, investment round mm. before Versa IPOs. I think 120 is pretty substantial for a seventh round of investment, uh, given that Versa has been around for years and years and years now. Um, I it seems to me like mm-hmm. it's that that prep work that needs to happen before Versa brings it out to IPO, and they are pushing this sassy message. Uh, sassy is the new hotness, and Versa wants to be all over it. It sounds like BlackRock wants to be there as well. Yeah, well, BlackRock manages you know several trillion dollars of other people's money, right? And it has a lot of exchange traded funds and stuff like that. So it's it's a very unusual company in the sense that it also has a business doing IPOs, and it's basically spare change, but. You know, at this point, an SD-WAN company raising $316 million over seven rounds, that's not an accelerated growth. And raising $120 million in the current market, that feels low. I would have expected something in the order of 500 to $600 million, uh, because they need to grow quickly before they get stomped on. Well, I guess I think it the other way, that they have pivoted to SASE and mm-hmm. they feel like it's, you know... Uh, Lots of growth ahead, and if they can IPO into the SASE market when all of that growth mm. is anticipated, uh, then you know they're they're seeing lots of money coming. in. Mm. Feels under undervalued for me. You know, SD WAN is a billion, but you know, 
mega billion dollar market. Right. 120 million is going to get you there. And you think you're going to get an IPO away? Uh, I'm not so sure. Maybe. We'll put that on the spreadsheet. We will, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to finish off the episode with a bunch of financial results. Um, Greg, did you have some uh, preamble before we get into the financial discussion? Yeah. I, well, there's two. We have two weeks of financial results coming out right about now, um, which is kind of interesting. And I thought I would just give you sort of a general prologue. Prologue? Prologue. Prologue. To the comments in that um, and there's a whole bunch of background stuff going on that actually affects the foreground. So I'll just go over these sort of quickly. Um, inter- enterprise customers, especially internationally, are increasing their budget scrutiny. So most of the analysts that I'm reading and the financial use I'm reading is that companies are actually scanning their budgets and looking for ways to slow down spending, not necessarily cancel spending, just stretch it out over lo- longer periods. There's um, a-, a broad expectation that the supply chain that we talked about as the geopolitical issues play out and the overwhelming majority of technology assembly and final production is done in China, but it's also now clear that that is going to start to move to new locations. Now, in the old days, it would make much sense to do everything in one factory at one time and you get the same product everywhere. Those of us who remember companies used to make it in three or four locations and each product would work differently will be tearing their hair out right about now. Um, and it also means that your supply chain management has to be top-notch because you've got to be able to say, how many have I got coming off this product line? How much have I got coming off the, have I got enough? Where's my mix and match? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. It, it puts more work on your end to make sure you've got equipment when you need it uh, and looks requires, I think, you to do a little bit more forecasting than you might like to do, it. particularly when it used to be you could just ring up Dell and have a server or a switch drop ship to you the next day, essentially. That's right. Yeah. And that's going to go away. And I, I think, you know, it was things like, you know, we'd have a chassis and the power supplies would be on back order for three months or something, or mm-hmm. you'd have some line cards in stock, but the others weren't. I mean, you never were able to deploy a solution because one of the line cards that you needed out of 10 different items wasn't available or something like that. Um, the supply constraints that we've seen up until now, I believe that to be a short-term problem. So all of the signals are that towards the second half of 2023, there will be no shortage of supply, but there may be supply disruptions. Uh, But until then, vendors have backlogs and warehouses of components or equipment that's purchased when prices were high. And of course, vendors increase the prices saying, oh, COVID, everything's got to be more expensive. Um, And the prices aren't likely to fall until the backlog's cleared. In other words, they bought all this stuff at high prices, they'll want to sell it at high prices. However, we're also seeing inflation and we're also coming up against a recession. So it's hard to tell. Inflation is increasing costs so that pressure to cut prices is less. And But if we go into a recession, then there'll be pressure on prices down. Which one of those wins, Drew? Who knows? I don't know. It's, it's super. It's just to say, you know, they're the things that you're looking for. As an industry, sure. though, I think that vendors have decided that customers will pay higher prices for the products that, than they've ever done before, and they're just going to increase their own profit margins and go back to customers. And you know, shareholders are saying, "Why are you not making larger profit margins like everybody else?" And I think the industry's just decided that customers are going to have to pay more. I doubt we'll see price cuts, and I just think we'll see more increases over time, especially in the software and. Um, many vendors are starting to see a lower mix of software revenue, which inevitably impacts their margins. So particularly F5 this week had a very bad um, quarter. The share price is down significantly because they weren't able to convince customers to buy their software. And the software has a much higher margin than than hardware, but the hardware has always been a tool to make customers sticky. So, And then keep in mind that most technology stocks are fallen by an average of 30% over the last six to 12 months. As the market for tech stocks, you know, sort of gets into a dry up, that's partly due to the recession and partly due to investors saying, you know, tech stocks are a bit risky, they're overvalued. Say, for example, Facebook reached a trillion dollars, just over a trillion dollars in value and has now lost $700 billion of that market value uh-huh. and continues to fall. So, you know, a billion dollars down to $350 billion in the space of a year, that's a lot of money to lose. <laughs> I just From can't a trillion get over to 350 billion, that. that's a bit, that's a steep cliff. Yep. Yeah. Now, admittedly, Facebook's got its problems. You know, its products aren't very good. Nobody sees them as having a long-term future. So it's got to find a new, you know, a new revenue stream. And it believes that whatever it calls the metaverse will be that revenue stream. But I think shareholders are losing faith. But the, the gist here is that 
Facebook actually has no reason to lose its value. It's the business is fine and it's doing okay. It's just people have lost faith. So against that backdrop, let's go into the financial results for this week and there'll be more next week because the announcements are spread over these two weeks. Yeah, and I just want to say before people start, you know, panicking over Facebook, I don't know that Facebook is a bellwether for the global economy or the even the tech economy going forward. They're a special case, uh, not necessarily the canary in the coal mine. They have a lot of their own very significant issues that they're grappling with uh, to account for that drop. I don't see that as sort of a signal for what the rest of the market, uh, particularly tech, is going to see. But, but, but yeah, let's get more specifics. First, Juniper Networks, uh, they had a really good mm. third quarter, frankly, for their fiscal 2022 Revenues of $1.4 billion, up 19% year over year, uh, which is a revenue record for Juniper. Um, all the uh, business units were performing well. Enterprise was up 10% year over year. Service provider up 11%. Cloud up 13%. Uh, and they brought in a net income of $121.5 million. Looking forward, Juniper is also projecting a very strong Q4. Yeah, so selling into service provider markets who are expending CapEx on 5G, as well as increasing the, the bandwidth and the backbone uh, they call cloud market, they call it content provider market. Um, they're having good sales to some of the mega clouds and the, and the mid-tier clouds of their PTX router series, which is good. Uh-huh. And they're also positioned um, to get quite a bit of money out of the $100 billion in the federal stimulus that the US government threw out uh, about a year ago. They, they, put, they had the stimulus bill and then quite a uh-huh. bit of that money is pouring into the telcos. Uh, in terms of upgrading and overhauling the infrastructure in that space. And the analysts feel that Juniper's going to do well out of that. And then particularly, of course, Juniper's got new products coming to market on ACX, which is a new hardware platform, and Mist, the software platform, the AI ops stuff, which they've had really good traction. And I've said a few point, a few times before that Juniper's pivot to software, you know, it, a couple of years ago, we were sort of like, eh, can they make it? You know, they're a very hardware-centric company. Certainly seem to be. They're still very hardware-centric today, but they certainly seem to be able to convince people to buy Mist, and they're telling a really good story um, around the AI ops and delivering way ahead. They're much faster, further ahead of just about all the other vendors in the AI ops space. So I do feel that they are making the transition, and they're certainly doing a better job than, say, Cisco or Nokia, and certainly getting traction in the 5G markets as well. Yeah, so I looked through the uh, transcript of the analyst call that Juniper execs have with uh, investors. They're anticipating that growth in sales to cloud customers is going to continue, driven by ongoing upgrades to 400 gig that have already started and, and Juniper's anticipating is going to continue into 2023. Uh, speaking of Mist, mm. they, they're seeing big success with Mist in enterprise and campus. They said revenues and orders for the quarter grew 50%. Over last year, uh, and uh, one of the investors mm. did ask specifically, how do you position yourself against competitors in the enterprise space? And Juniper's like, yeah, we're, we're way ahead. Nobody can touch us here. So that, of course, is also a little bit of braggadocio, which you you bring when you're talking to investors. But uh, <laughs> yes. I, I think you, you could make a case that, yes, Juniper is substantially ahead of its customer, its competitors <laughs> in that aspect. Well, they got there first. Um, acquiring Mist was really, I we saw it as a Wi-Fi play, and I think they sort of got a bit of a bit of a jewel, a hidden jewel there with the AI ops. I mean, they have exploited that AI element, I think, very well. They've executed on it very well so far, mm. Yeah, at least from our perspective. Yeah. They need to do a better job of telling the story, but you know, customers are buying it. I think they could do better if they were able to um, get their storytelling up to the point and do a bigger marketing push and get ahead of their competitors, really. Yeah. Um, and I know it's high fives all around at Juniper probably this week, but I'm curious how much uh, of this revenue growth is just sort of that pent up demand and finally being able to get gear that's been long ordered out to customers uh, as opposed to being a new mm. normal for Juniper's performance going forward. Uh, Rami Rahim in his remarks to investors said that uh, product orders were in the single digits when adjusted to account for customers placing early orders and gross orders experienced a decline in the mid-teens. So I think part of this uh, revenue momentum is due to mm. a backlog that's finally coming in, um, but Juniper is also, you know, projecting confidence that they can make this sort of the new normal going forward, and we'll see. Yeah, for sure. This is, you know, I think there's everything, every reason to believe Juniper is going to continue to to grow, which will be interesting to see if its competitors can equally grow. So, can Cisco grow? Can Nokia grow? Can you know, extreme growth, all of those people, are they able to, HP, are they able to grow or is Juniper the standout here? That's what we've been looking for. Yeah, 19% growth, I think that's pretty hard to sustain in sort of a saturated networking market, Um, but, (laughs) you know, we'll see. But, you know, against a backdrop of a 30% shrinking in technology across the board. Sure, they're definitely running counter to their sector, yeah. Yeah, and if you look at at its competitors, it's there, they're doing great, yeah. 
Uh, we'll cover Intel as well. They reported results for Q3 of 2022. The numbers are not great. The company had revenues of $15.3 billion, down 20% year over year. Net income was $1 billion, down 85%. And yes, I double-checked that. It is an 85% drop year over year in net income. So you would assume that Intel is doing some spending its money on turning the company around? Uh, I would also point out that, you know, Pat Gelsinger is getting $180 million a year, so that's an awful lot of that $1 billion is actually going directly to Pat Gelsinger. Uh, <laughs> Almost 20% of that is going to Pat. Is that, is that a good... Oh, yeah, anyway. I know. That's not a bad scam, is it? You know? Um, I think the interesting part, perhaps, is that they said that client computing, even though it was up, it was $8.1 billion versus an estimated $7.7 billion. They actually said the demand for laptops is slowing dramatically. Mm-hmm. So that's something to be considered. Uh, perhaps the most or the worst thing that they talked about is that data center and AI was $4.2 billion against an estimated $4.8 billion. Now, they're the markets that, Cis- that Intel had um, stated that it was going to win. It the data center group has always been holding Intel up. And in this quarter, it actually produced zero operating income. Oof. That is what <laughs> just contributed nothing to the bottom line for the data center CPUs. So the stuff that's, that Intel sells to cloud companies, to enterprise IT, isn't making them any income for some reason. Uh. You work it out. Uh, and the rest of it's all a bit all over the place. The graphics division is down. Networking division was almost on target, uh, which Intel, I think, is very hopeful. What they call network and edge was $2.2 billion market. Um, I think there's a lot of room for Intel to move into that market and start to compete with Broadcom uh, if they get the chance, if they can get it right. And Intel's foundry services, which is their nascent design, you know, how they separated the foundry from the design process, right. mm-hmm. uh, is now $171 million, was supposed to be $200 million. And they've announced three billion of cuts next year, Drew. Yes, figure I saw that. that three billion. Yeah, that is a lot of money to cut, and that those cuts will grow to a total value of between eight to ten billion by twenty twenty five. So there's going to be some real pain amongst the people at Intel, and for facilities and projects and things. Intel's going to be a very different company over time over the next two to three years. Yeah, curious if any of that's coming out of Pat Gelsinger's package. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> That's not Why how would you negotiate work. a package? That's not how it works. No. Uh, but I, I, you know, on the flip side, Intel should be able to grab a lot of taxpayer funding, U.S. taxpayer funding, to build new fabs. Absolutely. Not just the U.S. taxpayer, but anywhere around the world that they can find people and get further business on the back of export control. So, you know, if the U.S. government wants to build a new fab, who's going to be some of the? Who's going to be one of the companies they're going to turn to? Well, Intel. We already know they got a four billion to build a fab in Ohio a while back to just turn that over, and yep. you know that's going to make a big difference to Intel over time. So they're doing something in Germany, and I believe there's lots of other countries that Intel's talking to. So taxpayers may actually fund Intel's turnaround in the in the in the years ahead. Yeah, and I think the press release announcing the results sort of was at great pains to remind investors of all of the renewed investment Intel's making in foundries and U.S.-based chip making, uh, which requires a lot of financial investment, which costs a lot of money up front before uh, you start seeing gains. So I think Intel's like, just be patient with us. We know that the numbers don't look good, but we have a plan to execute <laughs> and that will pay off dividends in the future. So, so just hang tight with us. Yeah, trust me. You know, trust me. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good strategy or not remains to be seen. But all right, we'll wrap up with uh, Alphabet or Google's financial results. Uh, they had a modest quarter. The company had revenues of $69 billion uh, for the quarter, which is up 6% year over year, but they missed analyst expectations. Uh, YouTube had revenues of just over $7 billion, which was down 2% year over year. Analysts were expecting 3% growth. Uh, Google Cloud brought in $6.9 billion in revenue, up from $5 billion last year, but they're still posting losses. And in this case, it was almost $700 million for the quarter. Yeah, I think this is the, probably the one that indicates just how distressed the tech sector is. The fact that their operating margin is down. We've seen Google announce a number, the closure of a number of businesses over the last year, and that's obviously because the operating margin is starting to shrink, and they're not able to offset, um, you know, the the wasted money on these projects. I'm going to call it wasted money, which is a bit hyperbolic, but still, I think, you know, there's plenty of stuff going on inside of Google, which is like. Moonshots. It's just like, yeah, wasting money for the sake of it. So they're shutting down a lot of that stuff and tightening up the business. They're, we've seen articles where the, the CEO was accusing workers of not working hard enough and stuff like that. Well, he, obviously, that's the pressure. Here's the, 
<laughs> now you start to understand some of the vision, shall we say, the CEO vision that's going on here. And the fact that maybe this whole sector is going through a reset, um, is it systemic across the whole, you know, the world? So th does that mean that the companies that employ us are also going to shrink or these guys are just seeing it first? Who knows? But at the end of the day, Google's share price is down 36% year on year. So something's happening. Yeah, again, I feel like uh, I'm not sure how much to read into this because like Facebook, Google is an ad-driven company and so ad revenues were down, but Google is not in crisis. It's still a money-making machine, still bringing in gobs of money. Mm. It's just not quite meeting analyst expectations. So I feel like there's a little bit of a freak out that may be not entirely justified. And certainly I, we put Google and Facebook into the quote-unquote tech sector, but again, I don't know what the ramifications are for the enterprise space folks that we typically cover, whether this is more an ad issue than as opposed to a broader problem for tech, I guess that also remains to be seen given yeah. the, the broader macroeconomic issues. If the wider business landscape is slowing down spending, then ads will slow down in spending. Sure. And people sure. will spend, yeah. And I, I guess if, if Google and Facebook slow down their own spending, particularly on infrastructure, that'll have knock-on effects down the line. So maybe, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to panic yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to, you know, is this systemic or whatever? So sometimes we cover these topics so that we can point back and say, see how clever we were? <laughs> this might be one of those. <laughs> or it'll blow up in our faces either way, but that's, that's the fun. <laughs> that's the fun of forecasting. Fun, yeah. <laughs> All right, that wraps up our, our uh, news portion. Thanks for joining us. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba on new features and capabilities in their SD-WAN product. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking SD-WAN. We're going to dive into new features and capabilities in the Aruba Edge Connect SD-WAN, including new security and segmentation capabilities, licensing options, and more. Our sponsor is Aruba, a Hewlett Packard Enterprise company. Our guest is Matt Collender. He is Senior Product Manager, Aruba Edge Connect. Uh, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Let's dive right in. What are the new security features in this uh, 9.2 release? Uh, hey, folks. So in 2021, we added intrusion detection to the Edge Connect SD-WAN platform. Uh, recently, we've added intrusion prevention as well uh, with release 9.2. Um, on top of that, we've added firewall protection profiles, which is really just a, a templatized, uh, centralized, easy to deploy version of network uh, next generation firewall features mm -hmm. uh, such as denial of service detection and mitigation, uh, protocol attack detection and prevention, anti-spoofing, uh, strict state handling, DPI validation, those sorts of things. Okay, so this is an automated way to say I'm, I'm worried about DDoS. I've got sort of a basic profile I can just set up and, and press go. Uh, just set up, create a template, select the the gateways or the sites that you want to push that, you know, NGFW feature set out to. And then our orchestration service will take care of, of pushing out those configurations and uh, maintaining them across the network or across the you know the region or set of gateways that, that you want to uh, uh, deploy those features to. Got it. OK, so across my whole or part of my, you know, SD-WAN fleet as needed. That's right. Yep. Now you mentioned yep. uh, DPI validation. What do you? What's the validation part? I know what DPI is, but uh, sure, absolutely. So DPI validation in terms of of looking at at uh, you know packet uh, uh, heuristics, uh, uh, looking into the the payload of each packet and uh, validating that uh, you know that it's it's a valid payload for FTP or a valid payload for RTP traffic and things of that nature. Got it. Okay. So I think what you're what what you're mentioning there is that you're actually not just relying on a fingerprint. You're actually trying to validate if your deep packet inspection signatures actually match accurately. That there's right. not some variance that puts them outside, and you're not mis misidentifying. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so that would lead into then uh, probably denial of service detection and mitigation, as well as protocol attack detection, because that same feature seems to be matched into those. Yes, they're they're related to each other. So denial of service detection is really a header description for you know many of the items that I, I just listed, uh, you know, which also includes uh, you know rate limiting things like TCP sins, looking at half open uh, you know mm -hmm. half open sins, mm -hmm. embryonic flows of, of of different types. And that's something that people often say they don't feel safe with SD WAN because it's on the internet and therefore it must be vulnerable. But I mean, that's an obvious problem. And I would have thought that, you know, the, the SD-WAN technology that HP has, that Aruba has, which is 10 years plus old, is well set that, you know, th this is not a new technology 
in the Ruber portfolio because it comes from an acquisition. It's mature and ready for this. Yep, that's right. Mm. I think the other thing I had mentioned in my intro was uh, better segmentation. Can you talk about new capabilities there? Yeah, absolutely. So we have added role and identity based matching for our security policies in Edge Connect SD-WAN. And this is really to integrate with the Aruba dynamic segmentation solution. So what, what that means under the hood is that we have a role and identity cache engine, uh, which is snooping radius requests. So radius requests, uh, change of authorization events, uh, and pulling out role and identity information, building a table uh, and of, of role and identity to IPs, and then applying security policies based upon that role information. So at the branch, you can truly implement a, a you know granular zero trust uh, network access architecture and because it's role and identity based it sounds like i can make those policies a lot more fine grained uh, as opposed to just you know a- apply this policy to this particular type of traffic i can se- separate out a user or a group of users that's right exactly right? because in in some cases uh you, know, you don't want to trust that everything on the voice vlan is actually a voice device <laughs> um some uh, <laughs> right uh with with role-based or identity-based segmentation we are are profiling or authenticating every user or device uh, on the network or, or on on that vlan instead of just uh, trusting uh, that all of those devices are what they are supposed to be now, since you're talking about role and you also mentioned radius, does this mean, uh, do I need clear pass to, to get this capability, this segmentation capability? Mm, okay. Well, well, the uh, Aruba uh, dynamic segmentation solution is very much built around ClearPass. Uh, this new technology, this new feature uh, will work with any NAC. Uh, we're, what we're doing is just uh, re- you know, the responding with the Aruba uh, VSA for user role, uh, mm-hmm. which can be configured on any NAC solution. So it, it's not ClearPass uh, specific. So that means that I, you know, can be based on somebody who's authenticated in ClearPass and then say, oh, I'm going to apply them with this policy, regardless of which branch or which office they may be or located in, right? And or even at home, if they've got an SD-WAN edge at home, in the house and they yeah. could have a policy which says, yes, you can get to the internet or you can go here. You could. So if you're a system administrator or you're a developer, you might have a set of access that is dynamically allocated to you in the SD-WAN. That's right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you might connect to Wi-Fi or physically through 802.1x. Uh, it might be a device connecting through Mac authentication. Uh, you know, could be, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, through a portal of some sort. Uh, but ultimately, there's going to be a radius request that will go out, come back with a with a role, um, you know, user information, et cetera, which will will snoop from those messages. And but that's we'll just part the of the SD WAN. This isn't a VPN or a, you know some mystic technology applying a profile to a user. This is just on the SD WAN, provided they're authenticated with ClearPass somewhere. So Wi Fi right. campus starts that's to right. stitch all that together, weld all that networking together into a unified yeah. whole. That's right. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be ClearPass. If I've got a third-party NAC, I can still do that segmentation. Correct. Okay. Uh, And I understand that the 9.2 version also uh, comes with a new certification, an industry certification. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we we did all of this work in tandem uh, with achieving the ICSA secure SD-WAN certification. They're a, a third party, uh, you know, independent uh, division of, of Verizon, uh, you know, well known in the industry. Uh, and they recently added a secure SD-WAN certification, which expands their firewall certification with SD-WAN specific requirements. Uh, and we're very excited to announce that we're the first vendor to achieve it. And what's- yeah, most If you haven't heard of ICSA before, um, they are most well known for their firewall certification. In fact, they're the only standards body that ever defined the definition of a firewall <laughs> and then later on attached a testing regime so you can go and get validated. So if you ever want to know what is a firewall, the only place you can go is to the ICSA who will give you a definition and then validate that this pli- this device matches this specification for firewall testing. So I guess since SD-WAN, what you're really saying is that you're matching the security features of SD-WAN. And this is the rise of SASE and SSE and application firewalling in the SD-WAN, not so much that your SD-WAN SD-WANs, it's the security part. 
Right, exactly. When we talk to customers, we're told over and over again that at at the branch, uh, the goal is simplification. They don't want to have a, a bunch of different boxes, multiple platforms to manage. Uh, that's you know very much what what SASE, uh is 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 about. Uh, so everyone's looking for a a single platform that can deliver both that SD WAN functionality and the firewall functionality all in one. And so that's that's why we you know pursued the certification so you can feel uh, confident. Confidence uh, that the Edge Connect SD-WAN solution can deliver that for your business. And in terms of the firewall certification, are we talking classic stateful inspection or next-gen firewall for this certificate for this cert? Uh, we're we're talking next-gen firewall uh, functionality. So, but you know, every everything we listed in the firewall protection profiles and uh, you know the general requirements is uh, you know no no known uh, or no vulnerabilities to to known attacks uh, things of that nature. Okay. And again, the idea is that I've got a branch, I may have limited space, limited power, or just the management overhead. I want to minimize the number of appliances, devices I've got at that location. If I need a firewall, I can say, well, I've got the SD-WAN router. It can also has this certification that it can serve as a next-gen firewall in addition to the SD-WAN stuff. Exactly. Okay. And now I understand you've also made some adjustments uh, to licensing uh, to give customers a little more flexibility, a little more choice. Uh, that's right. Uh, so we've we spent uh, a lot of time in product management, getting feedback from customers and uh, Rubens in the field that work with our customers day to day. And we've discovered that irrespective of deployment or of, of network size, uh, many deployments, many customers don't require the full breadth of our SD-WAN features, especially some of the more advanced stuff, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like, like, like full VRF segmentation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mesh networking and what have you. So, you know, most folks want orchestration to be delivered, um, you know, as, as cloud service, uh, but with the flexibility to deploy on-prem uh, if their, their business requires it. Uh, and at the same so time, what you're, so what you're doing there is changing the licensing away from one size, you know, a one big license gets you everything in the box or there's a couple, there was a couple of tiers before to a much more granular thing in the idea that customers can start at a lower cost point and then enable the features that they want rather than going for a big, bigger price up front. Yep. That's right. So we've mm -hmm. introduced we'd introduced two different tiers, foundation mm -hmm. and advanced. And within foundation and advanced, they both have increments of bandwidth that you can subscribe to for yeah. your gateway or yeah. for your site. Uh, with foundation, there's a, a you know a smaller set of of preset or pre-configured overlays for for real time voice and video traffic, uh, for critical traffic, default traffic, uh, and it includes VRF segmentation, but just two basic VRFs so that you can support uh, your your standard corporate traffic and guest segmentation, yeah. uh, and a maximum of four hub and spoke, uh, you know, regional overlays uh, for your north south yeah. traffic. Um, and, and you've still got the WAN optimization as well, because Silverpeak, which was the product before, was one of the leaders in WAN optimization. So if you are in a specific situation where yeah. WAN optimization or WAN yeah. acceleration is your thing, yeah. um, that can be really interesting. And I notice also there's one here, there's an add-on license for dynamic threat defense. Explain that to me quickly. <laughs> Yeah, the dynamic threat defense is is our RDPS engine that we were talking about before. So uh, on a on a per gateway basis, you can decide, or you know, really you're thinking about things in terms of sites. You can decide whether or not IDPS is is uh, required. Uh, mm -hmm. So so whether you're going with the foundation license that we're talking about or the advanced yeah. license, you can you know on a on a per site basis decide to activate. You know, add-ons for mm. dynamic threat defense, which is IDPS, uh, or boost WAN optimization. Yeah, I've seen use cases for that where you might have a certain region where uh, people's attitude towards company internet might be a little different, you know, creative, mm -hmm. shall we say, mm -hmm. and maybe turning it mm -hmm. on in that region, but not necessarily across the whole globe, or, you know, maybe you've got a problem in a particular branch and you don't want the cost of all the licenses for whatever reason. Gives you right. the flexibility to be able to just deploy it in a place where, you know, got a virus outbreak or you've got someone who's continuously reinfecting or something like that i could imagine yep that's right and and that's also that's also on top of the flexibility to granularly apply that idps inspection mm -hmm. uh, to specific pairs of, of user roles or identity mm -hmm. information or between specific zones so that that's exactly the approach that we're trying to take we want to allow you to be very granular flexible and and surgical with your security architecture so 
help me understand that you've got two tiers, foundation and advanced. If I'm one customer and I want one set to be under the foundational and another set to be under the advanced, I can do that? You would have to do that with two different SD-WAN fabrics. It's it's really okay. a, it's really a choice between you know what are the the overall needs for for the for the deployment for the use case. Mm-hmm. Uh, foundation being you know basic hub and spoke topologies uh, and and you know basic uh, you know application uh, forwarding requirements with three business and ten overlays or advanced where you really need uh, you know an unlimited approach so you can unlimited number of regions very very uh, you know, large uh, multi-region, multi-business unit networks. You need mesh networking. Um, okay, so if I'm uh, of a certain size and I've got a lot of branches that may need to talk to headquarters and to each other, I might want to go with that advanced licensing to get the advanced routing capabilities, that mesh mm, capability. That's a partial mesh or full mesh capability. And I, I think if I remember rightly, the Aruva SD-WAN actually lets you do it per application. So you could create a, a full mesh for voice, IP voice or so that you could any branch can call any other branch, but not necessarily for all traffic. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a unique feature. Uh, well, we're coming up at the end of our time, Matt. Uh, any other last words? Yeah, yeah. Uh, with along with the advanced license that we were talking about, uh, excited uh, to uh, next time around talk about the future AI ops uh, AI insights and Aruba Central net conductor integrations that will be included. Okay, so something to look forward to in that that advanced license is going to start to integrate the AI ops elements uh, for SD-WAN. Yes, both AI ops and NetConductor, which allows you to apply security policies uh, across multiple network devices in the Aruba ecosystem. All right. And if folks want to find out more about Aruba, where should they go? Uh, reach out to your local account team uh, or on our website at www.arubanetworks.com. All right. Well, thank you, Matt, for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. We have hundreds, nay, thousands of fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.